really good to be with you this morning and to have some visitors here with us this morning. Uh, we are going to be in the last chapter of First Peter chapter 5. This morning we're going to wind up our series uh, this morning. Uh, I feel like whenever we have visitors and, and, and really after being, this is our 15th week in this letter. Can you believe that? Wow, it's been fun. It makes me feel like I need to do a really long recap, right? But, well, I can't do that this morning. Otherwise, we will, well, I will be speaking into your lunchtime. So the, we have all of our videos, all of our sermons are up online on our YouTube channel. If you want to check that out, you could. Yeah, 15 weeks. And as I was preparing for this week and looking at the last chapter, it's, it's a fair bit, uh, 14 verses. Um, I'm going to read the first 11, and then we'll get to the last few in conclusion, because they are... Peter's salutation at the end, but I just, I just want to say that um, throughout the series I've mentioned uh, a few different things. One of the things that we've mentioned is that, you know, if you go back 40, 50 years and you start looking online for sermons in First Peter, you're not going to find too many, right? It's one of those books, one of those uh, letters that has been more or less avoided. And, and it's, it's got some, as you know, some difficult things in it, but there's a couple of reasons why I believe that's the case. And I've said this before, first reason is that um, who wants 15 weeks about suffering, right? Like suffering for, 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 as Christians, right? Trials and uh, afflictions and uh, persecutions. And yeah, so that's one of the reasons. But I, I, I felt that as we've been going through this series, um, we've learned something uh, about the relevance, I think, about this letter for our day that we maybe didn't see before. And I think many of you have because you've come to me and talked to me about that, and I certainly have, and have been, I think, pointing that out sometimes painfully so to some of us. Uh, but one of the things is, is that here's the thing. I know that if I go back into my younger life, which is a way back for some of you, uh, seriously, if I go back into the 60s and 70s, that was still a time when the Christian faith, the Christian worldview was still somewhat acceptable. You know, most people in, in, when I was growing up were of the uh, opinion anyway that, you know, might be some Victorian teachings in the Bible and stuff like that. But, you know, actually, no, Christianity, a Judeo-Christian worldview has done a lot of good for the world. You know, like some of our values and, and, and virtues that we have, I mean, let alone freedom, right, and prosperity even. Uh, biblical teaching um, and the Christian life and lifestyle was considered pretty good. To have a Christian neighbor was considered an okay thing. Bit of a seismic shift in the last 10 to 15 years, hasn't it been? I've noticed that, and I think through this series, most of us have as well. We've seen that. We've seen that it's been a, a big shift. And at first, I'm sure like 30, 40, 50 years ago, if we did a series like this, we'd go, well, look at Glenn, Pastor, yes, we know there are people around the world where it's basically not good for your health to be a Christian, where you could be killed for your faith. That exists today. Right? It does. We know that. But how relevant and realistic is that for us today? And so I feel like his letter, as we've been looking at it, has been bringing that home in really, really powerful and important ways. Because the lessons that Peter teaches us in this letter are about how we are, first of all, to recognize what it is we're being slandered and maligned for, reviled for even. And it's not unto death. They weren't being reviled in that way unto death in that day yet. Exactly. Um, <clears throat> and uh, thank you, Siri. I don't know what that was. I think it was an investment advice. But anyway, uh, don't buy Bitcoin. I'm just kidding. Thank you, George. I don't know. 
We're getting a little off here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I believe it's helped us see that uh, things have changed, how we're supposed to respond as Christians today. Um, we don't feel like we're going to be put to death for our be- beliefs yet, do we? But we might get canceled. We, we might be persecuted in various ways. And so it's been wonderful to see how he introduces uh, them as, in the beginning of the letter, as I'll highlight at the end, as the elect exiles in their Babylon. And that's what we've been looking at as well today. And so as we read the last chapter, I'm going to read the last chapter. I want you to notice this. Peter starts off with the word so. Right? So. And, and typically he and Paul, Paul especially, when they would write their letters at the end, they would, they would use the word therefore, right? And basically meaning, okay, based on everything I've just been saying or writing and all of that, the conclusion is therefore to God be the glory or whatever it might be. In this case, Peter uses the word so, and I want to suggest to you it's, it's more along these lines. So in light of all that, or in light of the fact that, listen, you are going to suffer rocksters, rock church members and attenders and visitors, you are going to suffer persecution. If you're going to be obedient to God's word in this world today, you are going to be persecuted, slandered, reviled, canceled. How are you going to respond? At the end of the day, I think what most of us are going to want Peter to do is say, okay, Peter, I'll tell you what. So in light of all that, what now? <laughs> what are we supposed to do? Conclude it. Put a bow on this for us so that we, what are we going to need in order to be able to live this life in, in a godly, respectful, uh, and kind way to those who don't believe what we believe, but at the same time remain true to the gospel and bold in proclaiming it. And so that's what I think Peter is going to show us today. Title for your message today is this. It'll be on screen. Thriving in Babylon. I actually remember that. I took that from, we did a series in the book of Daniel many, many years ago, and that was the title for the book, Thriving in Babylon. That was a Babylon, wasn't it? It was Babylon. And that's your title for today. I hope we're going to see three things that we need from Peter today. We need faithful leaders. The church needs faithful and godly leaders. Secondly, we need grace-filled humility. We all do. And thirdly, we need the living hope. The living hope. Definite article. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. I'll read till 11 and pray one more time. Paul writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, 
firm in your faith, knowing that the same things or same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, thank you. Oh, thank you so much for... Yeah, thank you for Peter. Thank you, Lord, that uh, one of the reasons why I love the man and identify with him is because you did not give up on him. You restored him. And he went on to faithfully do what you told him to do. And that's why we have his letter today. So Holy Spirit, thank you for inspiring him to do that years before he would die upside down like Jesus died. So we want to thank you for what you've been teaching us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just encourage us today. Help me to expand on these words today so that we uh, take from what, what you've written and inspired Peter to write to the churches in that day. Lord, I, I pray that you would apply it to us and to our hearts here today. And so I ask you for that in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So number one, we need church, every church does, we need faithful and godly leaders. Verse one says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. So we'll, we'll stop there on verse one. So as we've noted several times in this series, uh, something that I, I know when, when I say this to you, sometimes it puts a little bit of fear into us. Right? But, but it would have been that day, and that is, is that these letters were read aloud amongst the congregation to the church. They were read aloud, and, and usually one time all the way through. They were circular letters, so they would get passed on to other churches, but they would come back, and then they would dive into it like we have, maybe not 15 weeks. We just like to go really deep, but they would go back into it and like, what did Peter mean? What did he say again? And they would learn and learn and learn. So I find it very interesting, as an elder pastor, uh, that Peter decides to have a letter read to the whole congregation about the elders, singling them out. Now, he's going to get to you, all of us, in this conclusion as well. But I find that very interesting. That it's not a separate, private note, hey, just give this them on the side, and when they're in a prayer meeting, tell them to read these instructions. No, he wants this read publicly to the church. So it's for everyone's edification and, I would say, training and teaching. So the question is, why, why would he be doing that? What was the point behind that? Well, we're going to get to that. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts on that shortly, or what I believe are the correct teachings on that. But first, let's note this. This will be fun. This is about leadership. This is about leadership in the local church, in every local church. And we know that Matthew 16, 18, which is where we get the name for this church, the rock, is when Jesus, in response to Peter, here's our guy, you know, declaring that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says to him, Peter, upon this rock, upon that testimony of faith in who I am, I will build my ecclesia, which is the first time we read about church 
in the New Testament. And so it's Jesus who's starting this all off. And so it's an interesting study, and I, I've actually given myself to it. I was raised Catholic, right? So being raised Catholic, you know all about priests and monsignors, which are the head of a local parish, and bishops and cardinals, and of course, there's the Pope, right? So I come to faith in Christ at 23 years of age, and I'm like, these Protestants aren't quite organized. How does that work, right? I had to know. I, I had to dive into it because I had to know, like, what, how does it work? And it's really interesting. I want to share a few facts with you this morning. It's an interesting study, how we ended up with the leadership model that we do have today in the local church of elders, pastors, you're going to see is essentially the same thing, and, of course, deacons. Now, some have believed that the role of uh, uh, the office, actually, which it is, uh, of an elder um, was simply adopted from the Jewish tradition of elders. You'll read in the New Testament, often there was the chief priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the elders. So they had a, a group of elders as well, but this is different. And so it's not really born out of that. Some would have assumed that. But the church actually started this way. Again, it's interesting. You can see it throughout the whole New Testament. You see it hinted at in the Gospels, but especially in the book of Acts. And so you're going to remember um, that Jesus spent a night praying, right? Remember that night that he spent praying to his heavenly father? He went to his heavenly father and he was like, all right, we know what's going to happen here. I, I need to appoint 12 men to be my apostles, capital A apostles. And so he goes to his heavenly father and he prays about these men and he is given in, through the prayers with his heavenly father the names of who those 12 men should be. And he goes and he calls them and he names them his apostles. And so these are the foundational leaders, these 12 men. These men would be the foundation of the church. They're the ones who would preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel. People would come to faith. Remember, day of Pentecost, Peter again, right? The church is born. They would be the ones doing that. And for the most part, they would be the ones writing the foundational teachings of the word of God. They were his handpicked men, 12 of them. So fast forward to the day that Jesus ascends. I know it's a big fast forward, right? It's, it's at the beginning of the book of Acts, and he's ascending, and he's telling them to wait in Jerusalem. And by the way, you will be my witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, first of all, in your own backyard, first of all, and then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he ascends. It's interesting. What happens at that point is that we see Peter again, our guy here. He rises, and this is before the Holy Spirit arrives. He rises in front of all the apostles, and he says, gentlemen, um, we need to fulfill prophecy here. See, Judas has disqualified himself and killed himself, hung himself. And so there's only 11 of them, and Peter says, we need to identify another man to take his place. And that's exactly what happens. We read in verses 21 and 22, actually the qualifications of an apostle are here in chapter 1 of Acts Uh, and verses 21 and 22, where it says this. These are Peter's words, him speaking. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. That's an important word, witness to his resurrection. So throughout the book of Acts, from this point now, what you see is, of course, the explosive growth of the church. That starts on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches that amazing, amazing sermon. And five to 6,000 men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ on that day. And the church is born. 
And then we see that it's Peter and John primarily who are going out and proclaiming the gospel, getting beaten, thrown into prison, and the church is continuing to grow, and they're loving one another. It's awesome, right? Eating day to day, breaking bread every day, loving each other, really loving each other, sticking together, being persecuted as the church, and it just keeps expanding and growing. And so it seems that sometime after Paul's ministry particularly the ministry of planting churches, that we begin to read about the establishment and the appointment of elders in the local church congregations. The pattern seems relatively clear that since there are no more capital A apostles, let me say that again, there are no more capital A apostles. There are churches out there today suggesting that there are and that they are a new apostle. That's just wrong. There aren't any more. It seems that after that, the line of authority from the apostles was then passed in the local churches to the elders. Luke actually writes about that in Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders, this is Paul, this is the actual, uh, after the churches were planted, appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed to the Lord in whom, to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so ultimately, as we know from the passage we read, our chief shepherd is Jesus who gives these gifts. And we also see Paul write about that in Ephesians 4.11 where he says, And he, Jesus, gave apostles, prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers. So from this point on, we see many instances actually in Acts of the apostles and elders in the same place. When Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles because there's a, you know, some question about Paul's apostleship, right? it, they go there and they meet with the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem. And so that's what we see is this constant coexisting until a point in time when the last apostle, the apostle John, dies. And that's it for apostles. From that point on, the local churches are led by elders, and that is the case to this day. So in every recorded instance in the New Testament, it is men who are the elders of local churches, and let me just pause there. Yes, I just said that. Yeah, I did. And, and you know, we have a, a thing on our website, and we've been promoting this for several weeks. It's called Reason Together, where people can ask a question, and, and, and trust me, we don't, we're not going to go into that today because it's not in the text. I'm just preaching you the text. But that's a question, Right? Some of you have that question. Please ask the question. We need to reason together on that. So finally then, why does Peter address the elders here? Why? I said I would get to that. Why does he do that? Well, he addresses the elders here um, because of a specific reason. They are those who are in charge or charged with, as we will see, caring for the flock. They are the ones who are charged with soul care. Caring for the very souls of those who are part of their flock. They are to oversee the church by protecting the flock. And so leading a church, leading, here's, here you go, this is fun, sheep. <laughs> aren't, aren't you glad that Jesus, Jesus made this metaphor? Okay, not me, okay? The metaphor, like there are shepherds and then there is you. And we're, and me, we're all sheep. Under the chief shepherd we are. Isn't that a lovely metaphor? It is. I think it's actually awesome. But here's the thing. When you're an elder, 
even under, and I'm just going to speak from personal experience. I love everyone in this room, okay, and watching online. But hear me. Even through the best of times, sheeple can be challenging. Oh, what did I say? Yeah, sheep. Sheep. Sheeple, they can be challenging. But I'll tell you what. When there are significant trials, significant persecutions in the church, it becomes even more difficult to lead. Can I just remind you of the pandemic? I know, nobody wants to go there. I surely don't. But I've never experienced it. Every other pastor will tell you this. I've never experienced this before. I've experienced division in the local church. I've experienced difficulty as an elder to lead and guide and soul care and and protect and so forth repeatedly. But I got to tell you, it was like during the pandemic, half of our church over here was like, you're not doing enough fast enough related to masks and vaccines and all the rest of it. And then others over here going, why are you listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry? Right? It It was like, it was polar. Right? And the elders were together, we'd pray about it, we would read the scripture, and we'd go, okay, look, she's not asking us not to preach the gospel anymore, so we can still videotape and get it out there, and keep our church together, and soul care, and feed the flock, we can still do that. Trust me, it wasn't good enough, or it was too much, or whatever. And, and just, just for your own, like, it, it's not easy to lead, okay? In good or bad times, especially in bad times. That's why Peter's writing to these elders. They've just been through, and they're going to go through worse. And you know what? He wants the flock to hear him encouraging the elders. He wants them to see that and hear that. Because what? Peter himself identifies with them, doesn't he? He says, look, I'm a fellow elder. I feel your pain. I'm in my own Babylon, by the way, as he will conclude with. And so he knows their struggles. And then he teaches them. Look what he says in verses 2 and 3. Shepherd the flock of God. That is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In the New Testament, we find a few words that describe this office of elder. Um, They are primarily these words, elder, overseer, and shepherd. We see all three of them here in uh, 1 Peter. You will see them also in the first chapter of Titus. Uh, You will also see them in 1 Timothy 3, where we find elder and overseer, at least, or the word oversight. One other word that we we use uh, in the church today, some are not sure about it, but it's a legit word in this sense. It's the word pastor, right? So my title at the church is lead pastor at the Rock Church, and I'll actually mention something about that in a second. But the word pastor figure actually comes from the Latin for the word shepherd. And guess what the Latin word is for shepherd? Yeah, pastor. (laughs) That's why we use that word. That's why that word has become a title. So Peter uses two of those words here to speak in the two ways that they are charged to lead the church. First is shepherd the flock. And please see, please see in the text whose flock it is. We have some great elders at the Rock Church, some new men that have come on lately that I just got to tell you, in our 14 years, we've, we've had good elders. And then we've had periods where it's been really difficult to get elders 
to get men to step up. It's a little sideline. I want to just mention this to you, um, uh, especially some maybe well, men and women, is this. Um, I've been putting the call out for elders almost every year uh, since we started The Rock. And you know what? There isn't a lineup. Not a lot of men running forward to say, yeah, definitely want that office. Why? Well, most of them are godly enough to have read the scripture and go, that is a... And they also know elders who've been, yeah, terribly hurt and grieved being in that role. But here's the other thing, and I've said this to a few people before, and, and... it's just speaking as a man. I didn't ask for this. We, most of us who know what this means in Scripture as men, we didn't ask that God would put this on the men. Just so you know, okay? It, it, okay, that's just a sideline, but I think it's important for you to hear that and understand that. And so I, I ask this, you know, whenever I'm, I'm doing this, and so that's why I say it's God's flock. We, we remind each other that at our elders' meetings. That, look, at, this is his flock. It's his church that he said he would build. Not mine, no other elders. It's not even ours. It's his. We are his flock. And so it's, it's a good reminder that Peter gives us there. So I got to ask you this. What, what's your little, literal impression of a shepherd, right? Now he's using a metaphor back in the day. Remember David? King David, he was a shepherd boy, right? And I don't know. I, some people have these pictures in their minds of what shepherds, shepherds do. Mostly what they do is, you know, they, they lie under a tree to get shade in the day and they got a little piece of grass they're sticking in their teeth, you know, and they're just letting the sheep run around and go crazy, right? Is that, is that your impression at all? Of a, of a, I don't know. I have weird impressions, but I, I don't think most people know what an actual shepherd does. It's considered a rather lowly position, like a fisherman back in the day, right? Well, actually, the truth is, um, if they want their sheep which they do, to all return to the barn at night, healthy, they don't get any rest during the day. They get zero rest during the day. They are watching over the flock. They're keeping, hey, you, come back here. (laughs) That's why they got the rod and the staff thing, right? Like they're making, I don't, okay, I know I'm a shepherd, but they are eyes on all the time and they're scanning the horizon. What for? Well, a sheep that may have one, how many? One, two, three, four, five, how many do I have? supposed to have 100. And they're scanning the horizon for what? Yeah, they're called wolves in the scripture. So like I said, if good shepherds want their sheep to come back with them at night, they've got to spend their whole day constantly paying attention to the flock. So shepherds in the church, similar thing, are constantly, diligently committed to caring for and protecting their flock every day. And yes, we are sinful men, and sometimes we worry too much instead of letting Jesus look after things or the Holy Spirit. But we do. We do. I do. So it's a constant job. Another aspect of shepherding is making sure that your sheep are, what? Fed well. You know? Like moving them to good grass. Like you ate all that. Let's go over here now, right? Here's some really good grass. Eat this. Oh, and by the way, I'm going to sprinkle in some really healthy grains every once in a while just to, you know, fatten you up and make you really, really grow. Now, now Peter gets this, right? Peter is the one guy who could write about this and would really get what a shepherd is about, wouldn't he? You remember how Jesus restored him? Remember that story, right? Denies him three times makes a little fire, a little, little lunch, and Peter comes and, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Jesus, yeah, you know I denied you three times, but yes, I love you. What did he say? 
feed my sheep. Second time, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Third time, I think Peter got it. Although he felt kind of discouraged by it. Feed my sheep. How do we do that? Well, we teach the word of God. That's how we do that. And that's what he wanted Peter to do. Did, did Peter do that? Yeah. He did that. He preached a great sermon, empowered by the Holy Spirit, that began the church. And then he went around preaching all the time until he dies and writing letters, which were beautiful. So it's about feeding and exercising oversight. Then is what shepherds do is they guide and lead their flocks. Exercising oversight doesn't mean, again, domineering. It doesn't mean that at all. It, it means looking out into the world and into the culture and seeing what's going on and, and checking, yes, what's going on online and, what, and, and having oversight, seeing the grand scheme of things and trying to keep the sheep aimed in the right direction. That's what this idea of oversight in this passage and in shepherding is supposed to encourage us to do. And the idea is until we, Ephesians 4, are all mature in our faith, following Jesus faithfully and dedicated every day, right? That's the goal. And so it's interesting also what he does here. Yeah, Peter adds three things not to do matched with three things that we should be doing, right? The really good comparisons here that are important, so look at these with me. He says, do not serve as an elder because, well, no one else is stepping up. Don't serve as an elder for that reason. Don't serve, serve as an elder because someone's going, hey, you'd make a really good elder. And now you feel obligated, right? There's an obligation. Don't do it. If that, it's a call. <laughs> you have to know by God. Read Acts 20. You have to know by God, that, by the Holy Spirit, that you are called to it. It's an amazing, it's a fantastic calling, but it, it's a calling and, it, and it's not something that we do out of compulsion or obligation. Secondly, so, and, and the good side of that is, but as a willing call of God in our life. So out of willingness, when, you know, I, I remember in the last crop of it, we did our uh, biblical eldership course, and there were several men who for quite a while were praying about it, and, you know, one of them is here listening to me right now, and he's like, oh, I don't know. It took months and months and months to, you know, and again, I'm like, I, I'm not going to obligate this man. I'm not going to push this man. This has got to be a call. And then there's just, in every one of the, these men who came forward, there was just, just this, it was like, yeah, you know what? I am willing to serve. Counting the cost and then being willing to serve is really important. Secondly, do not seek the office, obviously, for money or for power. Trust me, there's no money in it. <laughs> okay, just be clear. Well, for full-time paid pastors, lead pastors, there's some, but certainly not for volunteer elders. It's not for that. But, you know, power, that's something. That's something that we need to be on guard about all the time and careful about. Instead, it's got to be about an eagerness. It's got to be an eagerness to look at you, I, like I get to do right now, but as you come in and you greet, you know, look at the sheep, look at our church, look at our family, go, I am eager to serve these people. It's important to have that kind of eagerness. Elders need to have that. And finally, and I would add maybe most important, not to be in control, to exercise your need again for power, but instead... To be like Christ, elders must be models of what it means to be a servant of all. It's a bottom-up servant form of leadership. It's not a title and an office that puts me or anyone else above anybody else. It's not. 
it's servant of all. And it's, it's Christ who gives us that model. And of course, he said it himself, didn't he? He said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. That's who I look to. And that's what our elders look to. And that's what good elders, faithful elders should look to. So again, I'll just finish on that point with this. Church, you need faithful, godly elders. So can I ask you a favor? Support them and pray for them. Pray for your elders. That would be really, really wonderful. In verse 4, Paul encourage, Peter pardon me, encourages the elders who are hearing this read in the presence of the sheep, and he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will, if you are faithful, receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, one of the things I point out to the elders in training is, is that, and I do to the church too when we ever do teaching on this, is that we have a, a, an unwritten rule. Actually, it is part of our constitution. And that is, is that I have a title called lead pastor. And the reason for that is the senior pastor of the Rock Church is Jesus Christ. So I don't take that title, right? And so we acknowledge that in elders meeting that the senior pastor of the church is here at this table. <laughs> we are under shepherds of the chief shepherd. So again, these are important reminders. I just want to encourage you, church, that's, that's the way that all elders should think about this. Point number two, we need, oh boy, grace-filled humility. We, we need it. Look at this verse five. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So now Peter turns to all of those who are listening to him instructing the elders, Right? And uh, I, I, elders love this part. I'm telling you, they just do. Because he says, right, and many have wondered, why, why does he single out the younger ones in the crowd? Why does he single out the younger? Is he talking about literally younger, like in age, or younger in the faith? Well, maybe both, but probably younger in the age. Now, why would he be doing that? Well, let me suggest this to you. Things have not changed in 2,000 years, <laughs> right? Younger people, I, I don't, I'm not going to grab an age, but just think younger, uh, under 40 at least, right? Like, you know... They tend to. I did. I did. So don't hear me wrong. Have a problem with what? (laughs) Authority. Thank you, sister. Yes, they do. You know what the other problem is? Some younger people don't grow up. It's just true. We all struggle with that. We struggle with that. And so what Peter is trying to suggest to us here is, is that, look, it, it's really important. It's important to have godly, faithful leaders, but it's also important to respect them and trust them and come under their guiding authority over you. Scripture also teaches that we will be held to a higher account before the Lord for that. So it's really important that we see that. So here's the thing, as I said, what Peter is also saying and doing is setting up a very important contrast. One of the things that we need most to be able to thrive in Babylon from today going forward is collective, individual, complete humility. No one thinking that they are above anyone else. No one assuming that in any way someone else should serve them. No, it's based on complete humility. I love one of these things. I think it's Timothy Keller who said this because he's brilliant. Something like, it's not about thinking less of yourself, but it's about thinking about yourself less. <laughs> just repeat that in your mind this week, every day, okay? Just think about that. When you're not being too terribly humble, because we all struggle with this again. 
And then Peter applies it very strongly, quoting Proverbs 3, shows this great contrast and, and the one thing that will cripple a humble heart and a healthy church. And do you know what that is? Do you know what is the antithesis to humility in the Christian life, to having a humble heart? It's in the text. It's called pride. Oh, there's a word for you. There's a word for us. Our word, world and culture's relationship and celebration of pride is antithetical to the Christian view of humility. And what I mean by that is simple. I was taught as a young child. All of us were taught, you need to be, mom and dad are proud of you. Oh, so what do I got to do to make mom and dad prouder of me? Well, I have to excel. I have to perform. I have to do things. And and at the end of the day, if I do all that, what should I be? Proud, right? Friends, I I have scoured the scripture and I did it again this week a lot. I searched the ESV like for the word and I just kept looking for the, you know what? I cannot find too many positive references to being prideful. I can't. Now, can you be a proud Canadian? Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. You, yes, I mean, there are, there are examples where we can be proud of something. But here's the, even with that, we've got to be careful. Can I be a proud Canadian if the wrong guy gets voted prime minister? Or if they bring back masks? <laughs> you see, pride then becomes about me, right? About what I want. It's not humility. It's not humility at all. And so that's the most important part. Pride is what, listen, it, it, it was what Satan was guilty of and it was why God cast him and a third of the angels out of heaven. It was pride. What happened with Adam and Eve? Pride. Oh, you can be like God. Just, this is all you got to do. You can be like God. It was pride. It was unbelievable. It led to what? The fall into sin of which we were all born into. And so I'm sure you've all heard Proverbs 16, 18 before, right? right? It says this, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This is not a good thing. <laughs> but you've got to read the next verse, verse 19, because normally we don't. 19 says, better to live humbly with the poor than to share plunder with the proud. Oh, boy. Now, who are the poor? Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the humble, the meek. (laughs) That's the teaching. That's amazing. So the meaning of the passage is clear-cut. Pride does lead to humiliation at the end of the day. It's better to be humble and poor than proud and rich. Peter's words here are equally clear. God, listen, is against those who are proud. Do we want God to be against us? Obviously not. And so we have to guard that. Well, how? Well, verse 6 and 7 says, humble yourselves there, therefore. Here's the therefore. Humble yourselves, therefore, under what? The mighty hand of God and to one another, so that at the proper time you may ex- he, may ex- he may exalt you, casting, look at this, all your anxieties on him. How many? Like, like 10, 20, 30 of my anxieties? How many of them? All of them. Oh, Man, I got, I got a lot of anxieties to cast off this afternoon. You know what cast literally means in this text? Throw them away. Like It's not like casting a rod and then you want to bring in a fish. No, it's like throw them away. Get rid of them. Why? Why can we do that? How is it possible we can do that? Because Christian, we should know, you do know, you truly do know and trust that God does care for you. Read his word. 
He proves it over and over and over again, and he's going to promise it to us in Peter's text here. Number three, we need the living hope. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not in this alone. It's happening everywhere, sometimes unto death. And so we've heard this language before from Peter. He's basically like, be awake, okay? Be on guard here, like just be sober-minded, clearly thinking about what's going on. Be watchful, not just having your elders watch out for you. You be watchful of what you put before your eyes, what you listen to. Be watchful. In this case, knowing that we do not battle against flesh and blood, but with the devil and his minions, and they plot to lure sheep away every day. They plot to discourage you and me. They, they plot to scatter the flock. That, that's wonderful. They run into a flock, and what happens? The flock is gone. That's an interesting metaphor for what happens when a wolf comes into a church. And that does happen. They want to discourage us from being completely ineffective in the ministry and mission that we have been saved and called for. That's what they want to do. And so when you sense you're under attack, we're to realize we're all in this together to the very end. And what's that mean? We need to stick together. He goes on and says this in verses 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself look, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. We're not quite done. So there's your hope. That's my hope. And listen, it's a guarantee. It's 100% guaranteed for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. Look at those words. It, it, it's a promise that under, at the, in the grand scheme of things, this life is a blip. And when it is for, it brought to its fruition, either when Christ comes again or you go be with him, you are going to be completely restored. You are going to be confirmed. You are going to be strengthened. You are going to be established. For how long? Forever. Wow, let's get there, and let's get there together. In conclusion, Peter writes, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, Glenn took 15 weeks, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Man, guys, just like Paul. Peter concludes acknowledging the man he, who dictated his letter Uh, And then he seals it with his apostolic authority. This is the true grace of God. I declare this to you. This is the true grace of God that I am proclaiming and writing to you. Believe it. Stand firm in it. Take it to the bank. Finally, he says in verses 13 and 14, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son, Greet one another with the kiss of love, or as the King James says, with a holy kiss. Don't anybody? Okay. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Is this not a beautiful bookend to this letter that he's written, right? He opened the book, right, writing to the elect exiles, right? Exiles, reminding them of the Babylonian experience in Asia Minor, and he closes 
Us too, by the way. Us too. We're the church in Rome, which is a Babylon to us. It's our Babylon. He uses the word she, which some, makes some people wonder, is he talking about his wife? I mean, he does mention his son, Mark, but we know from Scripture that this is actually John Mark, his son in the faith, so it's not his physical son. No, no, you know what? This is, ladies, you're going to like this part of the message anyway. We all should. This is a beautiful picture of who we all are as the church, and we will all be for all of eternity. We, friends, are the she. We are the bride of Christ. We are now the bride of Christ. When, we, when I speak about our sister churches, some people go, why aren't you calling them big brother churches? Because they're not. They're the bride of Christ. They are our big sister churches. This is a beautiful way to end. And on that note, pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, oh, once again, I just want to thank you, Lord. I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Holy Spirit, all of you for... I just, man, thank you for translations of the Bible that we've been talking about earlier today, that we can be here today, and we, we have our faith today. We, you could have done it some other way, I'm sure, but it was the written word, the spoken and then the written word that was translated and preserved for us so that we could read it today, and we could learn about who you are, our mighty, gracious, and loving God. So we are eternally thankful to you. Thank you for all that you've done to cause us to be born again, to save us. Thank you for all that you're doing to continue to protect us. Thank you for, yeah, Lord Jesus and and all of your apostles for founding churches and appointing elders and teaching us what, what good leadership looks like and that we need faithful shepherds. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving gifted gifted people to us to guide us and to teach us and to lead us in that way. And Lord, thank you for for your church. Thank you for each other. It's such a pleasure and an honor to be able to call ourselves your children, call ourselves members of your body and members of your bride. Oh, we look forward to that marriage supper of the lamb that we sang about earlier. (laughs) What a meal that's going to be. So thank you, Lamb. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your worthy name we pray. Amen.